just check this mic, uh, this uh, music stand a little bit. Two weeks ago, I was teaching in, uh, in Waverly, and there you teach on steps, and so the music stand to put our Bibles on is down a step below you. So um, I pulled up the music stand, set my Bible on it. Next thing I know, I'm looking and music stand is slowly going down. And since it's down a, a step even, it was down about my knees. So I would pull it up and I'd be teaching. Next time I would look over. It was like a comedy routine. It was really strange. This one I think is going to hold, Jeff. Yep. I sure enjoy being with you when you're worshiping God, when you are praising him for his mercy and his love and his grace, his compassion. That's a beautiful thing. But I notice I almost never, not almost ever, I never hear Christians praising God for his wrath or his anger. When was the last time you heard somebody, I just love it when God strikes somebody with lightning, you know, or, just read this beautiful passage in the Bible where God opened up the earth and swallowed in all these people, you know? We don't praise God for his wrath or his anger. It's like, it, like, like it's a dark side of God, right? We just don't talk about it much. Back in uh, 1741, a Puritan preacher named Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, maybe you've heard of sinners in the hands of an angry God. And in it, he compared people to being like a spider dangling on a single thread above the flames of hell. And it scared people so much, it actually led to a revival that we call the Great Awakening in the American colonies at that time. It feels to me, though, like in the 250, 60 years since then, uh, we haven't talked much about the wrath or the anger of God. As you know, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the book of Lamentations. It's been interesting to me several weeks ago as people would say, so what are you going to be teaching on next? And I'd say, we're actually going to be teaching on the book of Lamentations. And go, Lamentations? I don't think I've ever read that. What's that about? So hopefully through this series, you'll become familiar with the book of Lamentations and want to read it for yourself. What's being lamented in the book of Lamentations, and lamenting is bringing your, your sorrows and your fears and your anger to God. And what's being lamented in this book is, is really the anger, the wrath of God. It's, it's taking place at a time when the city of Jerusalem is being destroyed by the Babylonians, 586 B.C., terrible time of suffering. And Jeremiah, who I believe wrote Lamentations, is looking at the suffering around him, and it hurts him, and he grieves it, and really what he is grieving is the anger and the wrath of God that is not only allowing this to happen, but causing it to happen. I think we are mistaken when we look at the, at the wrath of God as if it's sort of a God's dark side. You know, we've got this part of God that we love. He's merciful and joyful and gracious and giving. And then there's this sort of dark side of his personality, his anger, his wrath. And we don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it very much. And when you read in Lamentations, it sounds that way. This is, I don't know that this is a God I want to get to know very well. I'm going to read you a few verses from Lamentations because I believe that the wrath of God, the anger of God, grows out of his holiness and his love. Let me say that again, that the, the wrath of God grows out of his holiness and his love. 
If there were not the wrath of God, God would not be holy. If there were not the wrath of God, God would not be loving. And I want to convince you of that during these next few minutes. So let's begin by looking at some of the places in the book of, of Lamentations where the, the anger of God is felt so deeply by the writer. So I'm going to read some verses from the second chapter of Lamentations. And I particularly want to notice what it says about God's anger and his wrath. How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He's hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He's not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He's brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In his fierce anger, he's cut off every horn of Israel. He's withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He's burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who were pleasing to the eye. He's poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. He's laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He's destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed festivals and her Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. Yeah, that sounds like God is a, a being whose anger... His wrath kind of gets out of control. And I think that's one of the problems that we have is that we sort of associate God's anger uh, with human anger. It's like, it's like, you know how we feel like sometimes we lose control in our anger or it's inappropriate or it's ill-advised or it doesn't really, it's inconsistent. And so we sort of project that kind of image on the anger of God, but I think that's not fair. God's anger is something that is consistent in fact, I would describe it this way, that, that God's wrath is his consistent opposition to and judgment upon all that is morally evil. His anger is consistently opposing everything that is wrong and evil and bringing judgment upon it. That's what the wrath of God is like. So we see the kind of anger, explosions of anger often that, that are common among us. I've experienced, you have too, I would guess, you know? This is so inconsistent, it often doesn't have anything to do with, with what we get angry about. You, know, you, you come home from work one day, and it's been a beautiful day. It was like the weather yesterday, and you get home, and your daughter left her bike in the driveway again, and you pick it up and say, one more time, and you put it aside. You go in the house, and you say, honey, remind you, don't leave your bike in the driveway. The next time you come home, it's been a terrible day. It's raining outside. You, everything went wrong. Oh, you've got a migraine. You pull into the driveway. She left her bike in the driveway again, and you grab the bike, and you throw it across the yard, and you go in the house, and you slam the door, and you grab your daughter and say, I told you to put your bike away and not leave it in the driveway. That's it. No more bike for you. It doesn't really have much to do with the bike, does it? It has to do what's going on in you. Or you go to the grocery store, and you see a mom just exploding in anger at, at their child over some minor offense, and you think, how appropriate, you know, how, 
What kind of anger is that? And we don't know that maybe it has almost nothing to do with that. Maybe it's that the mom is so stressed because she's not going to have enough money maybe to pay for the groceries when she gets to the checkout. You know? and that's what human anger is like. It's, it's capricious. It's, it's maybe overreacting. It's out of control. It's violent. And so we think that God's anger is like that. But I want to suggest to you that it isn't. That God's anger is really a good thing that it is, in fact, an expression of his holiness and his love. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want us to look at some of the examples that people throw at me and at other Christians often as examples of God's out-of-control violence, his out-of-control anger and wrath, and see if we can understand what's really going on in those situations from God's perspective. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look first at, at the book of Deuteronomy. This is an example that I hear lots of times. Israel is coming into the promised land. God has brought them out of slavery in Egypt. They're coming into the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised to them. And there are already peoples living there. And God gives them instructions about how they are to treat the people who are there, basically Canaanites. So I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 20. It says, However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things that they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Oh, this is swell. This is a great God, isn't it? This is basically genocide. God says, I'm going to give you this land, so just go in and kill everybody there. Man, woman, child, isn't it? Wipe them out. Is that what God is like? What's going on here? I think there are two reasons, two important things to understand about what's going on here. Let me read you a couple other verses from Deuteronomy. This is from chapter 12. It says, the Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in the land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations worship their gods? We'll do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable the Lord hates they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. All right, so what's happening here? God is bringing the Israelites into, into the land of Canaan, and it is an incredibly evil culture. If I were to actually describe to you some of the practices, in fact, some of the religious practices of these people, it would turn this into an R-rated teaching pretty quickly. I mean, they had all sorts of... Um, perverted sexual practices and acts related as a part of their religion. And as it says here in Deuteronomy, they burn their children as sacrifices to their God. They'd build these idols that would have their arms out like this and a big, a big place for a fire below. And they would take their infant children and place them in the arms of these idols and burn them alive. And so one thing that's taking place here is that God is punishing evil. God has given these people basically 400 years, really since the time of Abraham, the opportunity to repent and to turn from their ways, and they have not. And God says, that's it. This culture is such an abomination, it's got to be wiped out. 
It's interesting. I, I fairly frequently hear people say, well, if God is good, why doesn't he do something about evil? And then when God does something about evil, they say, well, why is God so violent? You, know, you can't have it both ways. This was an example of an abhorrent culture, and God says it's going to end. The second reason is that God is at work in a plan of salvation that ultimately will culminate in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And for that to take place, God is protecting these people through whom he is working, the Israelites. And God knows if they are in the midst permeating that that wicked culture of the Canaanites, they're going to be seduced by it. They're going to be led astray. They're going to say what God says here. They're going to ask, hmm, look how they worship their God. Maybe we should worship our God that way too. And they would be suckered into these abominable practices. And so God says, that's it. I'm going to put it into that culture, and I'm going to protect my people. It's an expression of the holiness of God that he opposes evil, moral evil. And it's an expression of his love that he wants to protect his people through whom he is working to bring salvation to the world. Let's look at another example. This is from um, 2 Kings uh, chapter 2. This is at the time of the prophets of the Old Testament. So you remember the prophet Elijah? He's up on Mount Carmel, you know, calling down fire on the, on the altar to, to show that the priest of Baal, you know, are false prophets. Baal is a false god. Elijah has gone to heaven, and his successor is Elisha. And Elisha now is the man of God, representing God in the midst, midst of the people at a time when they're, they're kind of sliding away from God. And so here's an instance that often is used an example of God kind of overreacting in his anger. It says, from there, Elijah went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy, they said. Get out of here, baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. Oh, that's swell, isn't it? Apparently, God never heard the expression, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, you know. So here are these cute little kids out there playing, and Elijah comes by. He's got a receding hairline. They start to tease him, and Elijah just goes berserk, has a fit, calls down God to to punish the boys. God sends a couple bears, and they kill all the kids. Well, I don't think that's what's happening in this passage. Let's analyze it a little bit. First of all, the, the boys there, I, I read one translation where it even called them little boys. This is a word that actually means teenagers, like up to the age of 20. I picture this mob of kids more like a street gang. And what they're opposed to is God. Elijah, it doesn't, it doesn't mean his, his hairline is receding. He has shaved his head as a mark of being a holy man, as being a man of God. That's his mark of being a prophet of God. And Bethel, the city he's going to, has kind of become a center of, of cult worship. And Elisha is going there to proclaim the word of God and to call those people to repentance. And Satan is using this gang of thugs in fact, maybe endangering the life of Elijah to try to stop him. And what they are rejecting, what they are ridiculing, it's not Elijah and his bald head. They are ridiculing a man of God, and they're saying, we don't want you in our city. Get out of here, man of God. And God is not going to allow them to stop Elijah from going and doing what God has called him to do. 
Bears come, and it says they maul 42 of the boys. It doesn't even say they killed them. You know, what's happening here? God, in his love for people, is not going to allow Satan to stand in the way of God's sending a word of truth and repentance to people who desperately need it. Let's look at one, one other example. This is uh, from 2 Samuel. So this is during the, the time of David. So we're looking at like 1,000 B.C. And uh, the Israelites under King David are always fighting the Philistines. And this is after one of those times. This is from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. And he and all his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. And they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill. Now Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadad, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets and harps and lyres and timbrels and sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perazuzah. What's happening here? So the Israelites are bringing the, the ark of the covenant. Picture Raiders of the Lost Ark. They did a good job in that movie of sort of showing you what the ark of the covenant looked like, this gold chest with the cherubim on top of it. And it represented the holy presence of God in the midst of the people. They're bringing it um, back into Israel. And it's on, on the back of a cart pulled by some oxen. And, and the oxen stumble, and the cart, the, the cart maybe starts to tip. The Ark of the Covenant is going to fall, and Uzzah reaches out his hand to stop it, to hold it. And you would think at that moment God would say, Thank you, Uzzah, for taking care of the Ark for me. What does he do? Instead, God is angry, and he strikes Uzzah dead, and he dies right there. And even David is angry at God. For what he has done. Here's the issue. It's really important for us to understand the holiness of God. If we don't have a grasp of a God who is holy, we don't really get a grasp of our own sinfulness and our need for repentance. And the, the holiness of God, the presence of God in the midst of the people is represented by this Ark of the Covenant. And it is, it is so holy, so precious to them that it's kept in the tabernacle. This is before they built the temple. In, in the smaller room in the back, the place that's called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And nobody goes in there. Nobody even looks at it other than the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement would go there to offer sacrifice you know, for the sins of his people. It is the holy presence of God in their midst. And God has been very specific about how that ark is to be uh, 
how it's to be handled. It's to be covered. People don't even see it. It's never to be touched. It has rings on the side and poles that go through the rings, and it's to be, be carried by priests by these poles. You don't touch it, and you sure don't throw it in the back of some old cart to transport it. And what the Israelites have done, they're fighting the, the Philistines, and they have actually thought, hey, just to make sure we can defeat the Philistines, how about if we take the Ark of God out of the tabernacle, and it, it'd be sort of like our good luck charm, and we could take it into battle with us. You see how far they've gone from understanding the holiness of God? They do take it into battle. The Ark of the Covenant gets captured by the Philistines. And now they're bringing it back, and they're taking it on a cart, an ox cart. And God forcefully paints this picture again that he is a holy God, and you follow him because he is a holy and a righteous God, and you don't mess with the rules that God has given. And they've, they've fallen so far from that that Uzzah is a perfect example of thinking it's okay to touch the ark of God that represents the holy presence of the God of the universe in their midst. And God strikes him dead. See, I believe that the wrath of God, the anger of God, is an extension of, an expression of his holiness and his love. God doesn't delight in, in bringing condemnation and judgment but God is such a holy God and such a loving God that he's going to fight against everything that is trying to harm you and to pull you away from God. In fact, I think a good way to think about the wrath of God is that the wrath of God is God fighting for you. God's wrath is God fighting for you. It's his constant, consistent opposition to everything sinful and immoral that would try to influence you and pull you away from God because God loves you so much. So should you fear the, fear the wrath of God? Absolutely. Our God is a terrible God, and he is to be feared. And here's the example. Like, we've got this light shining here. So this is an area of, of sin and wickedness, and God's consistent opposition to it and judgment upon it is continually raining down upon it. And if you place yourself in this area of sin and evil, you can expect to experience the wrath and the condemnation and the judgment of God. So what should you do? You should repent, and you should move yourself out of that area of the judgment of God. I think about it like a parent. And if you're a parent and you have a child and there's something that is continually hurting and threatening and damaging your child, would it be a virtue to be complacent, to act as if that didn't matter? No. The virtue would be in being angry and doing everything you could to protect your child and to, and to stop whatever that is that's, that's affecting your child. That would be the virtue. And the same thing is true of God. It's not just virtuous of God to be loving and holy and, and just and good. It's a virtue of God to be angry at sin to do his part to stop it and to protect you from it. God's wrath is God fighting for you. 
Does God take delight in that? I don't think he does. It's a point where, where Jesus is in, in the city of Jerusalem, and there's a, there's a place where you kind of come up over the, the Mount of Olives, and there's a, on the hill in the distance is the city of Jerusalem there. And at one point, as Jesus is thinking about the fact that the city of Jerusalem in the next generation in 70 AD is going to be destroyed by the Romans. And I picture him with tears welling up in his eyes and saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how you who, who killed the prophets and stoned those God has sent to you, you know, how many times I would have gathered your children together like a hen gathers the chicks under his wi- her wings, but you would not. And now he sees that the judgment of God is going to come upon Jerusalem because, again, they have rejected God's representative, and now they have rejected the Son of God himself. Should you come into the presence of God then with fear and trembling? And the answer is no. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what God has done for you is to take his wrath that should be poured out upon you because of your sin and your failure. And he's taken it and he's put it upon the shoulders of his son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ has that crown of thorns pushed down on his head and his hands and feet nailed to the cross and he's lifted up and he's jeered at, and as he dies for you, he is experiencing the wrath of God. That's what's happening on the cross. It's the judgment, the final judgment of God upon your sin and my sin, and it's placed upon Jesus Christ. And therefore, I come into the presence of God, not with fear and trembling, but with joy and confidence because God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Let me just share with you a couple of verses from the New Testament that describe this. First John, it says, you know, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed in pure blood. The wrath of God poured out upon his totally innocent, pure son so that we might come into the presence of God with confidence. I'm going to ask you to do something that I would guess maybe you've never done before. I'm going to ask you to join with me as we praise God for his wrath and anger. Pray with me. In so many areas, Lord, it seems like we we see what's going on among people and we sort of think you're like that. But your love is greater than any human love and your wrath is not like our anger. It's not outbursts that are over the top or... Um, inconsistent. Your wrath, your anger is a great part of you because you love us so much. You will not allow these things to, to just flourish in our world. So I thank you that rather than pouring your wrath upon us, you poured it upon your son, Jesus Christ, who became the atoning sacrifice for us. We praise you for that. 
We thank you that you are a holy and a loving God. And oftentimes you are willing to express that holiness and that love in your anger and wrath. We pray in the name of Jesus, who bore our sins on the cross. Amen.